I think people are really focused on, oh, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. And that if it doesn't hurt, then it's okay. But I think for me, the things that physically hurt were sort of actually less uncomfortable than the things where I felt like I don't have autonomy. People are treating me like not like a human being, like an object. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. Today, I am chatting with Lee Camping-Carter, who writes The Heart Dialogues, a newsletter for people with congenital heart conditions and the people who care about them. Lee was born with a complex heart defect called tricuspid atresia and had three heart surgeries before she was four years old. She is also an award-winning journalist. As a lot of you know, I'm mom to a 10-year-old with a heart condition very similar to Lee's, so I've been following Lee's substack for a while because she explores so many questions that we've navigated. Like, why not everybody with this diagnosis wants to be known as a heart warrior? How to advocate for yourself in doctor's offices? And just how living with a chronic condition impacts your relationship to your body in ways you maybe never considered. There is a lot here, and I do want to throw in a quick content warning. If you are currently navigating a super fraught medical situation for yourself or with a loved one, today's episode may not be for you. I know there are times when I am personally ravenous for this kind of conversation and times when I just can't go there, so please take care of yourself. But the big picture question I wanted to explore with Lee is how diet culture and anti-fatness show up often quite reflexively in even this kind of super specialized healthcare and how living with a chronic condition impacts your experience of your body. So here's Lee, but first a quick break. Okay, it has been a minute since I read one of your lovely five-star reviews on the podcast. So this is from Gina. They write, I tell anyone I can about this podcast. So smart, so important, and so fun to listen to. As a mom of two boys and as a 46-year-old straight-sized woman who has begun to doubt a lot of the diet industry lies and damaging standards I'd previously bought into, it's so freeing and satisfying to listen to voices that don't uphold the status quo and to discover ways to raise my boys with the message that all bodies are good bodies, that food is fun, and that hunger is normal, and that they can trust their bodies. I am doing it imperfectly, but I am trying. And this podcast is indispensable to my parenting journey at this point. Gina, thank you so much. Trying imperfectly is all any of us can do, and I really appreciate you listening. So if you are listening and thinking, hey, I also want to support Burt Toast, please make sure you are subscribed for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating or review. We are up to 316 reviews on Apple Podcasts as of this recording. I would love to get that number over 500 because that many good reviews really, really helps other folks find the show, but we need your help to do it. So scroll down in your podcast player until you see the stars, tap and leave us a little note. Thank you so much. So my name is Lee Camping Carter, and I'm the writer of the Heart Dialogues newsletter on Substack, which is a newsletter for people who have congenital heart disease, which means they were born with some kind of complication with their heart. I was born with a heart defect called tricuspid atresia, which means that the tricuspid valve, one of the valves in your heart, doesn't form. And as a result, I only have one ventricle, which is the main pumping chambers in the heart, instead of two. So I had several surgeries when I was a little kid and mostly lived a normal life. 
And then I think in the last few years started to really realize that this is kind of a lifelong issue and more things can crop up as you get older. So congenital heart defects are actually the most common birth defect in the U.S. So they affect roughly one in a hundred babies. What's been really incredible over the last few decades is that, you know, medical advances have allowed people to really live into adulthood and even old age. And the kind of flip side of that is that we're realizing more and more that this is something that does affect people, you know, for their whole lives. And there's actually about two and a half million people in the U.S. who have congenital heart defects, and the majority of them are adults. Oh, wow. That's a big change. Yeah, it's really, you know, something that for centuries was a death sentence and then was something that affected children. And now it's really this sort of prevalent thing. And yet it's also not talked about, you know, there's no fundraising run like there is for like cancer or Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, which not that it's a competition or or anything, but you probably know someone with a congenital heart defect, and yet you probably don't know that you know someone. Mm -hmm. And so what this means is that you can live your whole life without ever meeting anyone like you. And that was certainly my experience. I didn't meet anyone else with a heart defect until I was well into adulthood. Didn't have friendships with anyone until I was in my mid-30s. And then sort of in parallel to that, you know, I lived this normal life. I grew up in Toronto, Canada. I moved to New York. I became a journalist and kind of got to this point where I was like, I want to create a community. And I thought, hey, I have skills. I've been reporting and editing and launching newsletters and doing all these things in my professional life. And so I thought that was a way to kind of create this community for people and hopefully help people who've grown up with congenital heart defects, but also their parents and families and medical providers and their friends. Oh, I think it's so important. So for listeners who don't know, this is a subject that means a lot to me personally as well, because my older daughter lives with a complex congenital heart condition. So she's 10 now. So, you know, from when she was a baby through about age three, we were in the intensive, active management of her condition, going through multiple surgeries. I've talked about this before. But we have, for the past few years, lived this, quote, normal life with her, right? You know, she's in school. She's doing great. She's thriving. And yet, Her condition is lifelong. It is something that we will be managing, you know, we meaning me for as long as she lets me be involved in her medical care. (laughs) Some point she's going to take over. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I know. The whole mother-daughter handoff of that was something else (laughs) we'll unpack later with my therapist. This is something she'll be managing her whole life. And I think a lot as we're getting into the tween years and the teen years are not too far away about these questions you're raising of community. We don't know other kids Certainly not with her specific heart condition. We don't even currently know any other kids with heart conditions. So that's a community she doesn't have right now. And I can only imagine as you get into the teenage years and then into adulthood, how much more important that community might feel. So I just really love that you are doing this. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I do get responses from readers along those lines where they feel heard, they feel seen. And yeah, it's really gratifying. So Another piece of this that I think a lot about the mom, especially of a daughter with CHD, but certainly all genders this would apply, is how this experience of living with a chronic condition impacts your relationship with your body. And yeah, this is a complicated one. I mean, you're living with a chronic health condition, so there's not only 
the standard diet culture messaging that all kids and all of us are bombarded with, but also we live in a very ableist, healthist culture that's bombarding you with a lot of messaging. I would love for you to talk a little about how living with your heart condition impacts your relationship with your body. As a kid, it wasn't something that came up too much. I mean, I was really lucky to kind of survive these surgeries and and to really be doing all right. I didn't have limitations on like physical activity and things like that. But certainly as I got to be, you know, your daughter's age and a teenager, I think I really felt like my body was a failure, you know, and I think that's something that a lot of kids have. But for me, it was this feeling of, you know, I can't run as fast or as far as people. No matter what I did, my body didn't work as well as Mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there was ever anyone who sat me down and said, that's okay. (laughs) You have a heart that's really complicated. Your heart is not like other people's hearts. It's okay. But also no one sat me down and said, hey, even if you didn't have a complicated heart, it's okay. <laughs> you can move for the love of it. You don't have to, you know, be the best get on the treadmill it. and hit a certain, you know, minute or mileage or calorie yeah. count or whatever. So I think that really underscored kind of how I thought about my body it was just it was a failure, which is so sad for me to say now. And I don't feel that way now. But I think the remedy I found to kind of counteract that was, okay, if my body can't work in this way that everyone else's bodies work, it can at least be skinny. Mm. I spent many years deep in, you know, diet culture, disordered eating, what was eventually diagnosed as an eating disorder. I mean, obviously, it was informed by everything in our culture and our family, which, you know, was very focused on everyone being thin, all that. But, you know, a big piece of it was also, you know, my body doesn't work like other people's, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I can find some sort of greatness in my body if it's skinny, if it looks good, if it's hot, you know. And was control a part of it too? Because, I mean, I, just as her parent, have struggled with this idea that we live with this thing that happened beyond all of our control. And I wonder if that also would then play into like, okay, if I can't control that, can I control my weight or something like that? Yeah. There were many moments when I was growing up where I didn't have like control over my body in just a very literal sense. Every year I would go for tests at the hospital, you know, echocardiograms, which are ultrasounds of the heart, and, you know, kind of lying on a bed with my shirt open as a 13-year-old and having a stranger kind of rub jelly on me. (laughs) And of course, no one says that's a problem because they're medical professionals and they saved your life and you have to do it. You have Mm -hmm. to do it. But I do think I have a very, like a sense of my body where I kind of want to protect it um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and be able to kind of have agency over it. Oh, Yeah, I think that might have played into it. Yeah. I mean, for anyone who's watched a kid go through any kind of intensive medical experience, there are so many moments where a child's body autonomy is being violated. And it is, as you're saying, medically necessary. And I think our medical system could do a much better job navigating that. We always fight to give her whatever control we can, even if it's just like choosing which arm the blood pressure cuff goes on or, you know, which finger they put the pulse socks on. This was more when she was younger. Any sense of control she's allowed to have, I try to give her in those moments. A big one for us is we always tell them she's going to take the EKG stickers off herself because 
It's, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel good when someone's ripping stickers off your body, you know? And if she does it herself, she has this little system of how she takes them off and it makes her feel more in control of it. But you're right. So much of that process is just having no control over what's happening to your body. I think you're absolutely right that there's so much more to do. And at the same time, I think it has gotten a lot better. I can only imagine how incredibly terrible it was. <laughs> and this is not to say anything negative about individual nurses or cardiologists or, you know, I mean, many of whom are wonderful and caring and lovely. But there's also so many pieces of having a lifelong medical issue that aren't about pain. They're about other things. And I think people are really focused on, oh, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. And that if it doesn't hurt, then it's okay. But I think for me, the things that physically hurt were sort of actually less uncomfortable than the things where I felt like I don't have autonomy. People are treating me like not like a human being, like an object. So when you say these other things are more complicated, you mean those experiences of feeling like your body doesn't belong to you in that moment? Yeah, I think that for me, those were the hardest things. And I think those are lower on the list of priorities for Mm -hmm medical personnel and understandably, right? You want to make sure that the patient isn't in pain. Right. But I think it's also important to recognize that there are little things that can really help make people feel like they aren't a piece of meat. (laughs) Absolutely. And just to give listeners some context, you know, it is only shockingly recently that pain management is even as big of a focus as it is in pediatric care. There's this weird history where they thought babies didn't really experience pain, and so they didn't worry about it, which is truly horrific to contemplate. And that has been a big shift, but you're absolutely right. I can remember so many nurses saying to us in the hospital in those early years, well, don't worry, she'll never remember any of this. She'll never remember any of this. And then at the time, I was like, I think that's what you tell yourself to do this job. I don't think that's necessarily Mm. true for these kids. I think that's what you tell yourself to feel better about how much you have to manipulate a kid's body and take away their autonomy in order to do this. And the better way would be for us to be thinking about how do we maintain more of that autonomy while doing these necessary things? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot that I don't remember from those surgeries just because I was so young, but it absolutely affected me. And I think there would have been ways to make those experiences better. Yeah, I think there's like the literal, okay, they literally won't remember this particular blood drop. (laughs) Fine. But is this shaping their understanding of their body and their felt safety in the world? Yeah. A lifelong phobia of needles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is it going to be surprising that they're unpacking this 10 years later? (laughs) Really not. So yeah, and I think that's where that's another layer that not all medical professionals, but many medical professionals still don't want to look too closely at because they're constrained by the way their job has to get done and the way the whole system is. And they don't, you know, if they had to look at that, they wouldn't know how to get from point A to point B, really. And I will say not, you know, not to get totally sidetracked into this, but I do think that, you know, these days the cardiology care I get is much more sensitive about those things. So, you know, nurses ask me how I'm doing. They tell me what they're going to do before they Mm -hmm. do it. I typically say that I don't want to get weighed, and I've never gotten pushback on that. That's amazing. Yeah. In a cardiology setting, particularly. And I don't know what it's like in the pediatric centers these days, but certainly the 
adult care I've experienced is like remarkably different from when I was a kid. Well, that is really encouraging. And I don't want to scare folks who are maybe somewhere in the pediatric process. I think there is progress being made. And when I have advocated for a different approach, we usually get it. It's just not necessarily the starting point for the way they're operating. And this is, again, sort of across the board pediatrics. It's amazing how many people will come in to do something to your kid and not introduce themselves to the child. And so just a simple thing of me being like, hi, what's your name? Oh, great. This is an introducing my child. Like, (laughs) it's just like look at each other like people here. There's definitely small things parents can do to improve that dynamic. But then I think the other thing is being aware, as it sounds like maybe was something missing for your experience, is being aware that this does have a long tail and that this does impact kids' relationships with their bodies in all sorts of ways you can't predict. And so having a plan for therapy or support as they navigate it in the subsequent years. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. I'm curious about the timeline. So you said you had the surgeries were when you were a little kid. And when did you sort of start struggling with what became your eating disorder? When I was 15, 16. So it was like a decade later kind of thing. I think it was that time when you know, I think that's when it comes up for a lot of kids. And I will say that I didn't ever think of it as an eating disorder until 2019 is when I was actually formally diagnosed. Oh, wow. And, you know, I think it ebbed and flowed. It wasn't a continuous kind of thing, but it was, you know, it was a long time. Mm -hmm. It was many years. One thing we know about eating disorders is that they can put a lot of strain on people's hearts. So I don't know if there's any piece of that you want to speak to in terms of managing eating disorder treatment and managing your heart health? Well, I think I did not tell anyone about it until, honestly, like the last couple of years of my life. I'm 39 now, so you can do the math how long that took. You've been going Um, through it for a long time. Honestly, I wish I had a better answer, but I don't think that for congenital heart disease, there is really any research into eating disorders. I know that there you know, in the last decade or so, there has been more research on other mental health conditions, you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD, Mm -hmm. but that's really just starting. And, you know, I would love someone to prove me wrong and send me the link to this, but I've never seen a study in terms of how many people with CHD have eating disorders. I think it's something that hasn't been studied yet. That would be super fascinating to understand. It feels so important to look at that relationship more closely and look at how these early experiences of medical trauma, chronic experience throughout childhood of the medical monitoring and all of that. And as you started us out with the experience of feeling like your body doesn't, quote, work, all of that just feels like a perfect storm. I mean, I am not the only person I know in their 30s with CHD with eating disorder histories. I'm sure not. When you did get treatment for your eating disorder, Did you find folks who could talk about this piece of it with you, or did you have to sort of navigate it as two unrelated things, even though they're obviously related? I was really lucky to find a really great therapist who is a fat liberation therapist, and that's how I fell into this rabbit hole. (laughs) And I think she's been really great with the, yeah, the medical trauma and chronic illness pieces. But I think part of it also was like me a little bit educating her about Mm -hmm the idea of CHD and and what that is and what it looks like. Yeah, and how it can continue to impact you. That makes sense. And also educating my cardiologists. I mean, when I finally came out to them, 
I wound up sending a letter to my cardiologist and my electrophysiologist, which he specializes in like the electrical circuits of the heart. You know, I was getting arrhythmias and weight loss was one of the recommendations. And I had to send a letter that was, you know, just very calmly spelling out like, you can't recommend weight loss to me. I'm I'm not going to do it. How did they were? They were great. I want to say again, like my cardiology team is fantastic. And, you know, my cardiologist called me and I think was a little like, well, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) Now I have to talk about feelings and that's not my normal (laughs) thing. Right. But was very understanding and, you know, was very much like, we want you to take an active role in your health and your heart. And, you know, we want to hear about this. So he was supportive. That's really encouraging to hear and not necessarily what I would have predicted. So I'm really glad to hear that. I know at every stage, I'm actually pleasantly surprised that they've been receptive. And I'm, I would say like small fat or maybe, you know, not even that. I'm white, you know, I'm able-bodied. I've got a lot of privilege, so I don't know what it would be like for someone else. Can we talk a little more about the experience of feeling like your body doesn't work and how... Because I think, you know, here on this podcast, we talk about diet culture a lot. I think we're only starting to really grapple with how to talk about healthism and ableism. And I would just love to hear your experience as someone who lives with a chronic condition. So when I was younger, I was always encouraged to exercise. There's a lot of people, you know, in my generation who grew up with CHDs and were told they should never exercise. And so I think for me and perhaps other people like me, it felt like I could never do enough, <laughs> like mm-hmm. I could never be healthy enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that anything I did do, you know, didn't count unless it was like to the nth degree. And then I think for that population of people who were told that they couldn't exercise, it was very much like, you know, now that guidance has changed, there's a lot of anxiety around any kind of movement. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have that. Another thing I hear in interviewing people with CHD is, so they tell me that one of the things that causes them stress when they go to the cardiologist or to any doctor really, is that people will think that they have acquired heart disease. You know, now that they're old enough that potentially they could be Mm -hmm. someone with acquired heart disease. Mm -hmm. And there's a feeling where, like, people have told me this, where They want to tell the nurse, like, no, 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 this isn't my fault. I was born with this. You know, I don't smoke. I don't eat cheeseburgers. Like, this isn't Mm -hmm. my fault, you know? Right. And I think, I mean, first of all, it causes them stress about that. But I think what's unspoken in that is that it is the fault of those other people who eat cheeseburgers, which, you know, I think it goes without saying that health is made up of many different things. We don't know all the reasons why people get heart disease as adults and all that. Right. Genetics still plays a role. Yeah. Environment. And so I think there's a lot of kind of healthism embedded in how people think of their hearts and their bodies. Mm. You know, like I'm not that person. It's similar to the different stigmas around type 1 and type 2 diabetes, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Where type 1 is yeah. like, oh, that happened to you when you were a kid. That one wasn't your fault. And type 2 is like, well, what did you do? And <laughs> right. In both cases, unhelpful, (laughs) unfair, biased ways of approaching health completely. And I think, too, it is weird that there's this sort of big division between congenital and acquired in the adult space. I mean, it 
makes sense when you drill down into the specifics of treatments, probably, but there should be more allyship between these communities. I think part of that is just that, well, I think it's very new to have, you know, a big group of adults. (laughs) So there's just sort of historically been, you know, groups that raise money or awareness or research heart disease. And typically they don't devote a lot of time or resources to congenital heart disease right. to so adults with congenital yeah heart that's disease. a complicating factor too it's like well we're getting ignored and it's all these people who brought it on themselves getting all the research dollars is like a <laughs> sort of unhelpful narrative when yes we need more research dollars but we could do that without stigmatizing people on the exercise stuff too that's so fascinating i mean we definitely get the message of like oh she should be as active as she can more active 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 so good to be active we definitely hear it But I have encountered some of that more, oh, they can't do anything, like the sort of keep them in a glass box approach to congenital heart, like often from older folks. Like that's the assumption of like, oh, she must not be able to play any sports. I'm like, well, she doesn't play sports because we don't like sports as a family. Um, (laughs) I mean, that sounds very familiar. (laughs) I don't want to spend my Saturdays at trouble soccer games. (laughs) And she has zero interest. But it is also a real thing, right? That like, you know, when she does do stuff in gym class or just whenever, there are limitations that she has that other kids don't have, and that crops up. And so then I get very in my head about, I want to encourage you to listen to your body. I want you to rest when you need rest. So I'm always advocating on that side of things. But then I'm also aware of, I don't want you to feel like there's all these limits around you. Like If you want to push yourself, go for it. That's amazing. And I know there's benefits to that. Do you have any thoughts on navigating that balance, I guess. Now I'm asking you for parenting advice. (laughs) (laughs) I really wish I had a good answer to that. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that my experience was kind of the opposite where I was treated so much like a normal kid that we didn't even really talk about me having a heart issue. I think there definitely could have been space to talk about it more and Mm -hmm. to, you know, to not feel like it was this scary, unspoken thing. Right. But also, you know, there are people who were really, you know, who grew up thinking that they were fragile, that there were lots of things they couldn't do. You know, God forbid you would travel or even live in your own apartment or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's, you know, the other end of the extreme and and that's not good either. It sounds like you're kind of navigating the middle of it. I'd love to talk about scars a little bit. That's also such a big piece of the CHD body puzzle. You know, my understanding of this is that there used to be a really big stigma around these scars. And certainly in the last 10 years that I've been parenting a kid with a heart condition, all of the sort of social media talk I see is very much like celebrate your scars. They're warrior stripes. There's like these campaigns where kids show off their scars And I think that's great to make them a positive thing, of course, and embrace them. And I'm betting it feels a lot more nuanced when it's your body and your scars. I think that campaign might be more confined to kids with CHD. Yeah. So my experience was that when I was a kid, I didn't really think about my scar. And I think everyone that I was interacting with kind of knew me. They knew my history. They knew that it was there. I stopped seeing it. They stopped seeing it. It was fine. And then I think as I got older, particularly into teenage years and then 
definitely when I was in my 20s and I was, you know, going to college or traveling or, you know, just meeting new people and dating especially mm-hmm. <laughs> was when it would come up because you would meet someone. And for me, I would think, oh, my God, the first thing that they're going to see is my scar. And the only thing they're going to look at is my scar. And I have to explain what is this thing on my body? You know, like I have to explain my body to them. Mm. So it was really on my mind. And yeah, I think there are some people who do see it as, you know, like a quote unquote badge of honor or, you know, that kind of thing. There's like scar pride and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's lots of people who don't really think about it that much. And then I think there's also people who, you know, do still feel really sensitive about it. You know, particularly if you're a woman, you know, wear turtlenecks or that kind of thing. Yeah. And just for folks who don't know, it's because the most common scar to have from heart surgeries is they call it like a zipper scar. And it runs like basically right down into your cleavage, like (laughs) right there. Right, right, right. And you never know. Is someone staring at my scar or my cleavage? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what's going on? Yeah, yeah. That's it's an added thing to navigate, I'm sure. (laughs) Right. What are you focused on? I think for me, I would always rather people just ask about it and I can tell you and I don't mind talking about it. And then we never have to talk about it again. It's not a thing. But no one does that. And I also understand why they don't ask about it because, you know, it's personal. And do you want to spend your life explaining your body to people? Like you said, like that would also kind of get old, I would imagine, of like, you know, to explain the scar again. I don't know. If they're going to look at it or like, Mm -hmm. you know, very obviously stop themselves from looking at it, (laughs) then I would rather just get it out in the open. Yes. Let's just have the conversation. (laughs) The best would be they just don't care about it. Yeah. You know, but I will say it's interesting. So I interviewed a model a few months ago who had open heart surgery when she was, I think, 10 or 11 months old. And she has a zipper scar. And she told me about how she'd been in campaigns and the, you know, photo director, the photographer would sort of automatically Photoshop out the scar. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's something, you know, when we're talking about body positivity, that I very rarely see models or, you know, even actors or, or anyone with scars. Padma Lakshmi is sort of the one example which is not a zipper scar, it's on her arm. But because you can really easily get rid of a scar Mm -hmm. on screen, people do. And what the model said was that people would do it without asking her and she would actually have to ask them to keep it in. That's so violating. Because the assumption is, of course, you don't want people to see your scar, you know. I mean, I can remember before my daughter had her first surgery, I can remember looking at her without her scar and thinking like, how, you know, because she was only a month old when she had that surgery. And just, I remember feeling really emotional about her body at that point and thinking like your whole rest of your life, there's going to be this scar. It's going to look different. And that felt like something at that point I had to mourn. And now that feels wild to me because her scars are just part of her body and part of her story. And I can't imagine her without them. It's just interesting, this assumption, like, of course you would want it gone. That I find almost pretty offensive. Right, right. And I think that's another difference with the people with CHD, where for many of them, they had their surgeries as really little kids. And yeah, and for me, like, I can't remember a time when I didn't have a scar. Right. And if I ever see a photo of myself, you know, 
from when I was a kid. I mean, it's just, you know, like a really little kid. I mean, I had the open heart surgery when I was almost four. Mm -hmm. So I already had scars, you know, as, as a really little kid. I mean, I can't imagine not having it. And I think that's different for someone who had heart surgery as, you know, a 45 year old. Sure, sure. It feels very alien to them. That now feels like this body that you've known is different in this profound way. Whereas yeah. these scars are scars that have been part of people's bodies their whole lives, more or less. And either way, it's this resistance to the idea that bodies can change and evolve and not be perfect. I mean, even my scar, you know, looked very different when I was a kid sure. versus now. It fades, it shrinks. Yeah. Are there any other ways you see diet culture and anti-fatness showing up more generally in the heart community? We talked a little bit about the congenital versus acquired debate, but I'm curious if there are any other pieces of this. I think there's just a lot of pressure on people with congenital heart disease to be healthy, mm. you know, to be thin, to exercise, to eat the right diet. One diet that people often get prescribed is a low-sodium diet, mm -hmm. which is an elimination diet that is not as sexy as right. gluten-free or <laughs> cutting out carbs. Not so trendy anymore, but <laughs> yeah, it definitely still involves a lot of eliminating. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's just that added pressure. And I think this is probably true for anyone with a serious medical issue or a chronic illness that I think you really feel like if I don't do all these things and then something happens, it's my fault mm -hmm. because I didn't check all the boxes. I didn't, you know, make as much effort as I could make. Oh, God. I mean, I have an essay I'll link to that I wrote about having to let go of that in terms of my guilt as her mom, you know, and forgiving my own body that I somehow in my pregnancy must have not done everything perfectly and resulted in this. And it breaks my heart to think about people growing up with these conditions and feeling that same way, like that you still have to get an A plus in managing your chronic condition is just, I mean... That test is never going to be over. Like you're never, right? You're never going to get the A plus. Right. Well, and I think it goes back to the idea of what healthy is, right? Like, you know, we talk about healthy often as this dichotomy with being unhealthy. So if you're unhealthy, it's this sort of temporary place where you're going to snap into being healthy at some point. And, you know, for me, it's never been like that. For many people, it's not like that. And when we say the word healthy, the assumption often is you know, a healthy diet, whatever that is, you know, no fat or carbs mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. sugar and a healthy weight, meaning thin mm -hmm. and all the other aspects of health are yeah. so rarely part of it. And I think it's true for the CHD community, but for everyone where, you know, healthy can be getting a good sleep, can be spending time with your friends, can be getting outdoors. Like there's so many ways to be healthy. And I think you know, definitely within CHD and across the board, just there's so much focus on diet and exercise in this really narrow way. Yeah, that makes sense. It's depressing, but it makes sense. Again, I think it ties back to everything you were talking about in terms of what contributed to your eating disorder of feeling like you need to get some part of this right, that you need to feel some sense of control over your body that's not there. And if you can achieve health in this very narrow definition of it. Somehow you're, you know, balancing some scale or something. Yeah. Or they can't come and get you, you know, right. if something goes wrong, like right. you, you have a clean conscience. If you wind up 
I don't know, getting an arrhythmia. It's not your fault. Oh, but, I mean, it's, and what not, a terrible, it's like, not how it works. <laughs> yeah, it's not how it works. And it just shows more broadly how much work we have to do to untangle health and morality in this country and this culture, like that we have so associated health as a just a matter of willpower and like following these certain rules and then you can achieve it which is utterly false. And you would think no one would know that better than folks with congenital conditions. And yet they're operating under the same set of pressures, you know, even more so, it sounds like. Really tough. All right. So Lee, I would love to know what your butter is for us. Yes. So my butter is the podcast called Heavyweight. Ooh, I don't know this. Despite the name, it's actually not about fat liberation. <laughs> I was um, getting hopeful. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So it's a podcast that Jonathan Goldstein has created. He's a longtime Canadian radio guy, but it's about kind of going back to those moments in our lives that we regret, you know, where like we could have done something different or we wish we'd done something different. And he interviews people and then like finds those people from way back in their lives that they've, you know, done wrong oh or, wow that's you know had a weird interaction with you know so that they can actually talk to them <gasps> and he's just so like funny and melancholic and neurotic and just like such a great voice oh that sounds so good they're in the middle of putting together the eighth season so it's sort of on hiatus okay. right now but if you haven't heard of it there's seven seasons I know, I'm go binge in. them oh that sounds so good and I'm just like cringing at the thought of like finding people in my past like oh god sounds <laughs> terrible but I mean also really good listening my better I thought in honor of since we're talking about CHD I would think of something related to my kiddo and the really fun thing we've been doing lately that has absolutely nothing to do with her heart because it's also great to emphasize that people with heart conditions are many more things than that <laughs> absolutely <laughs> we have been watching the good place together which I had already watched like when it first came out but you know, she's 10 now and she's like a smart, funny kid. And so like finding shows where I'm like, this is fun for us to watch together. It's not a kid show anymore, but it's not like wildly over your head or just upsetting in terms of like too much sex and violence and that kind of stuff. Like there's, a, I would love commenters, you know, drop it in the comments if you have other shows suggestions for us. I will say we don't do reality TV, so don't suggest baking shows, but I'm glad you all love them. <laughs> it's not my jam. But now we just did The Good Place. And it was a delight. It's just such a good comedy anyway. And it's a great show to watch with a 10-year-old because 10-year-olds are very sure they're right about everything and really ready to start like honing their adult argument skills. And so all the like philosophical debates they have in that show are fun to watch a 10-year-old like digest and sort of have her own take on like who's good and bad and what it means to be in the good place and the bad place. That's an awesome one to binge as well because yeah. it it's this whole like universe yes. and I won't spoil anything. Right, right. But it's there's like, an ending. There's a very <laughs> satisfying ending. I let her stay up pretty late to finish it one night because <laughs> I was like, okay, we got to see this through. <laughs> We're yeah. in this now. But a great jumping off point for talking about religion and what happens when we die and just all sorts of wacky topics. Lee, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for bringing this conversation to Burnt Toast. It's obviously an issue I think about a lot and I think folks are going to get so much out of this. So really appreciate you being here. Why don't you tell folks how we can follow you and how we can support your work? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me because, you know, 
I just want to say that it's so great to get this out to an audience of people who aren't already part of this community. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So you can subscribe to my newsletter at theheartdialogues.substack.com. You can follow me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. (laughs) I'm at Lee underscore KC. So L-E-I-G-H underscore KC. And that's about it. I don't do a lot of social media. Good for you. I support that (laughs) fully. (laughs) Thank you. This was wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free on your podcast player, tell a friend about this episode, and leave us a rating or review. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year, or $10 a month and $120 for the year if you go for our extra butter premium level. Either way, you get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com or click the link in your episode description. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.